0: Today is is the second Sunday of of Epiphany. It's that season when we celebrate that the birth of the King of the Jews was also the birth of the Savior of the entire world. And this reality is captured in this image in which we see Gentiles who are coming to worship the newborn King. Our, Our focus on these next four months is going to be Jesus, the person of Jesus, And through the gospel readings, we're going to be following Jesus from his birth up through his ascension into heaven, that we'll look at on May the 13th. We mentioned an older chorus last week with these lines Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our aim is not to look at Jesus. So heavenly mind that we become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Now I haven't heard that charge leveled at anyone for a very, very long time. Uh, maybe that's because few of us are heavenly minded. Johnny Cash, by the way, wrote a great song using this phrase. Uh, if you want to look it up on YouTube. Now we want to turn our eyes upon Jesus, so that by seeing Him and knowing Him better we will begin to see ourselves and the people around us and our world through his eyes. And then, having done that, we will be of enormous earthly good. By looking at Jesus, we began to see people the way Jesus sees them, and that's our aim. Last Sunday, we witnessed through Mark's story the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. Uh, Today's reading, we're going to see that Jesus is traveling north, leaving Judah, and entering Galilee. It's page 810 in in your Bible, if you'll turn to John chapter 1, page 810. We're going to start looking at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. I want you to look at this map. I actually was going to bring my laser pointer this morning, and I left it at home on the table. But uh, Jesus starts off down here just north of the Dead Sea, where he's baptizing in the Jordan River, down at the bottom. Just to the left of that, you see Jerusalem. And then you go, so that whole lower section is is Judah, Judea. Then you go through Samaria, which to the Jews was off-limits. And then above that, you see Galilee up around the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is moved from down here by the Red Sea up by the Sea of Galilee up to to the region of Galilee where he's preaching. And uh, we also notice one little town up there that gets mentioned just at the tip of of the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida, uh, which is the home of Philip and Andrew and his brother Simon, Simon Peter. Now, Jesus entered Galilee, and he found Philip, who might have looked something like this. We don't know. Now, one of the meanings of the word that John uses here to describe what happened is to find something that one was searching for. So it suggests that Jesus was actually searching for Philip we get the impression that somehow he knew Philip, whether he had met him or not, and had chosen this man to be his disciple. And therefore, Jesus was taking some deliberate action, searching for Philip and finding Philip. We're going to see this throughout our whole look at Jesus, that every Sunday we're going to see Jesus taking some deliberate action on our behalf. Now, what do we know about Philip so far? Well, the only thing we really know is that his name is a Greek name, even though he was Jewish. He's the only one of the disciples with a Greek name. Now, that's not unusual, but it is a bit provocative. Uh, for, for hundreds of years, Judy, Judaism has been wrestling with Hellenism. After Alexander the Great, his empire fell apart, his empire was partitioned. Basically, that region was under... Greek, rule, and influence. Language came in. Most of the population of of Jesus' day spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Spoke all three fluently, or relatively fluently. So to hear a Jew with a Greek name was not uncommon, but probably not that comfortable either, because they were constantly battling the influences of Hellenism. So maybe Philip took some abuse for having a Greek name, probably especially as a young person. It didn't bother Jesus in the least. He calls Philip. And a fact, the story, he doesn't so much invite Philip to be his disciple as he commands it. Philip, follow me. And Philip obeys. He begins to follow Jesus, and the very first thing that Philip does, he goes looking for his friend Nathaniel, So that he can tell him about Jesus John 1 verse 45 We to look for Nathanael and told him We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about His name is Jesus The son of Joseph from Nazareth Now this probably happens in Cana Um, That's where Jesus did his first miracle Turning water into wine because later in John's gospel, he identifies Nathaniel as Nathaniel of Cana. So this is probably in Cana, Nathaniel's hometown. Now, by the way, there's some confusion around the names of the 12 disciples uh, because they're a different list in the New Testament. And some of the lists in John are a little bit different from in the other gospels. Some disciples had more than one name. Some disciples had nicknames. Some disciples had names given to them by Jesus. Like Simon, he renamed Peter. The disciple named Nathaniel in the Gospel of John is probably the one who is named Bartholomew in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Same person, just two different names. Here he's Nathaniel. Nathaniel's response to Philip's good news was dismissive. John one forty six. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? What's going on here? Look at the map Up there on the map to the left of the Sea of Galilee You see Cana and you see Nazareth Cana's on top of Nazareth on the map They're separated by a distance of about 14 kilometers Not very far I just learned recently in a discussion out in western Manitoba where Wendy grew up in a town of Binscarth that people in Binscarth and people in Russell, 19 kilometers removed from each other, have a certain rivalry that can be just about as fierce verbally as that between Calgary and Edmonton. I had no idea. Small town Rivalry. There's a rivalry between Cana and Nazareth. And Nathaniel doesn't like Jesus because he's from the wrong town. It's really probably that simple. He has no interest in a man from Nazareth. However, Philip is, is a bright lad, and he doesn't argue, much less get into a fight. He simply says, come see for yourself. Come see. Arguing about Jesus doesn't get us nearly as far as showing people through our lives who Jesus is. Now, likely because Philip is his friend, Nathaniel agrees, he he goes. John 1, 47. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. What Jesus literally says is, here is an Israelite indeed. He's the real thing. If we were to really translate it literally, here's what Jesus said. Here is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no bait. That's the word. It's not misspelled. Bait. What does that mean? Hebrew and other languages are very literal. It means no deceit. There is no deceit. comes from the word bait. Why does that work? Well, look at these. What are these on the screen now? A fisherman uses lures... Or bait to deceive a fish. Poor fish takes a look at this thing swimming along, said, That's another fish. Decides to eat it, and then soon that fish is what? Lunch or dinner for the fisherman. Duck hunters use decoys to deceive poor ducks to stop by for a bite to eat, and they become someone's dinner. He is an Israelite in whom there is no debate, no deceit. Now, there's a play on words here that's going to be very helpful to us to understand how this story works. But I'm not going to tell you the play on words right now, but don't let me forget to come back to it, the play on words. Now, back to Jesus' greetings. It seems like a strange thing for him to say to this person. It feels a bit like a compliment. But how can Jesus compliment a person he's never met before? Well, apparently that's exactly what Nathaniel was thinking. How can he compliment? He doesn't know me. Because he says in verses 47, he says, How do you know about me, Nathaniel asked. you got to love this guy's directness, don't you? Nothing good comes about a Nazareth. How do you know me? Jesus replied, verse 48, I, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. That One little statement has a profound effect upon Nathanael And he responds to Jesus with a a declaration That is like an explosion of worship or praise Or an explosion of faith Rabbi, you are the Son of God The King of Israel Nathanael was convinced in a moment That Jesus was the Messiah And this seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Well, the fig tree might hold a clue to this story. It's often hot and dry in that part of the world. Well, usually hot and dry in that part of the world. In Houston, Texas, where I lived for a part of my life, it's always hot and humid. On a a bad day in Houston, shade doesn't make any difference. You're still just hot in the shade or in the sun. But where it's hot and dry, a tree can make an enormous difference. You can find a great deal of relief in the shade of a tree on a hot day. And if that tree happens to provide you something to eat, it's even better yet. Big trees were a good thing to have in your backyard. Nathaniel apparently has one in his backyard. So we see Nathaniel sitting in the shade under his tree, And Philip comes to tell him the good news about Jesus. That, by the way, is the sort of thing that followers of Jesus do. They tell their friends about Jesus. Now, it's probable that Nathaniel wasn't just keeping out of the sun. In his day, the fig tree was also a place of meditation and prayer. And Philip is, as a consequence, we assume, interrupting Nathaniel's prayer time. Now, Michael Card is a a Christian musician who is also a, a very thorough Bible scholar. He's written a number of commentaries. And I'd like to read you a portion of his comment on this passage. The fig tree is a symbol of Israel and eventually became used as a place of prayer in Jesus' time. This leads us to tentatively conclude that Nathaniel might have been praying under the fig tree when Philip called him. He goes on to say, the Pharisees had reawakened the hope of the coming of the Messiah to the extent that asking for his return was a necessary part of every prayer. So the devout Jews, every time they're under the fig tree praying, they're asked that the Messiah would come. He goes on to say, perhaps Nathaniel was at prayer since he was under the fig tree, a place of prayer. And if indeed he was a true Israelite, as Jesus said, he must have been praying for the coming of the Messiah when Philip interrupted him. You see, Nathaniel didn't just hear Jesus say, I saw you under a fig tree. That's no big deal. A passerby could have said that. A next-door neighbor could have said that. Anybody walking along could have said, I saw you the other day under the fig tree. No, Nathaniel, I believe, hears Jesus say this, I saw you praying, I heard your prayer, I know your heart, I know the desire of your heart. And being so known by Jesus draws from him this explosion of faith and praise. Only the promised Messiah could know him that well. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He takes that explosion of faith and proceeds to build on it throughout the rest of the story. John 1, verses 50 and 51. Jesus asked him, Do you believe, just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree, you will see greater things than this? Then he said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven heaven open and angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man. That's Jesus. The one who was the stairway between heaven and earth. Jesus has just identified himself as a stairway linking heaven and earth. In words, John refers to Jesus later on in the gospel. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the access to God the Father. That's Seeing something in what Jesus said, though, rings a bell, doesn't it? Who in the Old Testament had a dream in which he saw a stairway connecting heaven and earth? That's question. Jacob, thank you. Well done. We often refer to it as Jacob's ladder. Stories in Genesis chapter 28. Of course, it wasn't Jacob's ladder at all, was it? Who was at the top of the ladder? Look at Genesis 28, verse 13. At the top of the ladder stood the Lord, Yahweh. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. It was God's ladder. And for that matter, it was God's dream. God used this dream to communicate with Jacob. I want to take a step back from the dream just a minute to refresh your memory about this story. Jacob was running away for his life, running from his twin brother Esau, who was the oldest of the two, and accordingly should have received the blessing of the father. You remember that Isaac one day called Esau in and said, I want you to go out and and do some hunting. I want you to capture some, kill some game. I want you to cook it the way you know I like it. Bring it to me, serve me, and I will bless you. I will give you the blessing that is yours by inheritance. So Esau goes off hunting and While he's gone, Jacob and his mother conspire to cheat Esau out of his blessing. He puts on Esau's clothes. They take a goat and kill it. She cooks it just like Esau likes it. I mean, like Jacob, like Isaac likes it. Uh, they take animal skins and wrap them around his forearms and, and, and the back of his hands. You see, Isaac is blind. So they conspire to deceive him, to trick him. So Jacob brought the meat to his father. You can't see him. He says, Isaac says, you smell like Esau. You feel like Esau. I can feel your hand. I feel your arm. Are you really Esau? He's he's blind, but he's not dumb. Are you really Esau? And what does Jacob say? I am Esau. Dad's still thinking. How did you get this game so fast? Do you remember his answer? The Lord your God gave it to me. He lies to his father and he brings Yahweh, the Lord God, into the lie to establish it. It's pretty ugly, isn't it? And he got away with it. It looks like he got away with it. Uh, You know the rest of the story? uh, He's blessed by his father. Esau comes in and says, have you got no blessing for me? Sadly, he really didn't. He'd given the blessing to Jacob. So Esau decided to kill his brother. Nice solution. But Jacob runs away. And he's running when we find him here in Genesis 28. But everybody that runs eventually gets tired. So he stops for the day to rest, puts his head on a stone, and he falls into a deep sleep. And in a dream, he heard God speaking promises to him that you and I both know he did not deserve. He cheated. He lied. He blasphemed. He did not deserve these promises. He awoke the next morning realizing that he was still in the presence of God. Remember the line from the psalm? It says, when I wake up, you are still there. He woke up from this dream that he had with, with God being on the top of the stairs that link heaven and earth with angels going up and down. And he said, you're still here. So he set up a stone and he named that place Bethel, which means house of God. Anytime you see a, a Hebrew name with Beth in front of it, it means house, Bethel, house of God. Bethsaida, house of fish, where uh, Andrew and Philip and, and uh, Simon were from. He woke up and said, I'm in the house of God. Now, I wonder, I'm speculating now. When did Jacob begin to wrestle with his shame? He could run from his brother. He could also run from his shame for a while. But it catches up with him eventually, doesn't it? When did he begin to wrestle with his shame? The shame of deceiving his brother on multiple occasions. The shame of lying to his father. The shame of blasphemy. Remember I said there was going to be a play on words? It's almost like a pun, literally. You remember that the name Jacob means what? Deceiver. Deceit or deceiver. The name means deceiver. Now, later in his life, his name was changed by God from Jacob to Israel after a wrestling match. I'm not sure it was a wrestling match with a theophany or an angel. It was a wrestling match. Nathaniel knew as much about this story. Well, no, I'm going to take that back. Nathaniel knew way more about this story than any of us do. He knew that story for word, word, word for word. So let's go from this story of Jacob back to Nathaniel. Now this is a painting that's in the form of an icon. Whoops, we've got the wrong order here. What happened to our pa- There's the painting. On, on, on the left here we see Jesus. Jesus finds Philip who's in the middle. He calls Philip to be his disciple. You see icons aren't representative. They're, they're stories. He finds... Finds uh, Philip in the middle. Philip's got his hand out to Nathaniel. He, he reaches out to Nathaniel to bring Nathaniel to Jesus. Nathaniel says, ah, "I don't want anything to do with this guy from Nazareth." Jesus points. "I saw you under the tree." So there's little Philip under the little tree. That's the story. What does he say to you? Are an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no Jacob? That's the play on words. Deceit means the same thing as you are an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob left. That's a profound statement for him to make to, to this man. There's no more Jacob left. From the beginning of the conversation to the end, Jesus was taking Nathanael back to this story of Jacob. There's no Jacob in you. And then they have more conversation. And then he talks about the, the, the ladder to heaven. And it ends with that dream of, of the ladder. Nathaniel knows his own shame. We don't know what it is. Just as Jacob knew his shame as well. Here's the question that haunts me a little bit. What did Jesus know about Nathaniel that we don't know? Jesus could look into his heart and see Nathanael's shame. That's the power of God. And Nathanael certainly had his own shame. We all do. There's not one of us in this room that could honestly say, I have no shame in my life. There are things that we've done that have shocked us. There are things that we didn't do that we should have done that have shocked us. And we know shame. We know deceit. Maybe at one point in his life Nathaniel was on the run Not from a brother But running from his own shame Trying to find some way to deal with his shame To find relief from his pain Maybe he had done his own wrestling match Or several wrestling matches And here we see him We witness him Having an encounter with Jesus Who knows him We see him under the tree praying, and then we see Jesus saying, I saw you under the tree. I heard your prayer. And it reminds me of an old Christian prayer that is often prayed at the beginning of a church service that describes God and Christ as the one to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. We can't hide anything from God. He knows everything we've done. We can't hide our shame from God. He knows who we are. Jesus knew Nathaniel better than Nathaniel knew himself. He knew his past. He knew his present. and Nathaniel knows that. He knows that Jesus knows him. Exactly as he is. And yet Jesus welcomes him. And receives him. This is what Ashley was talking about at the beginning of the service. We, we, we have a God who knows us. Knows everything about us. Everything. The things that we don't dare tell another soul. He knows. And he loves us. And welcomes us. And his response to that is a profound act of worship. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. That is an act of profound faith and worship. Jacob's story, Nathaniel's story, it's our story as well. We have shame. We ignore it the best we can, and When we least expect it, sometimes it catches up to us and haunts us. Jacob represents one of the most shameful characters of the whole Bible, to me anyway, appalled at what he did. And yet God showed him remarkable mercy and forgiveness and gave him a completely phenomenal promise that he did not deserve. That's our God. Now, what does this have to say about the way we look at our world? We're surrounded with people right now who are being outed for shameful things. They're in the news almost every day uh, for all kinds of different things. And, and what's our attitude towards those people? Well, the, generally, the attitude that we hear expressed in the media is they get what they deserve. Keep it on them. Let them have it. And I understand that. We're all wired with a sense of justice that people should get what they deserve. But for us ourselves, do we really want what we deserve? We want mercy. We want grace. We want to know God's kindness and receive it and embrace it. There's an old hymn with a beautiful phrase that fits this. There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in God's justice, which is more than liberty. God is always just, but in his justice, there's kindness and mercy. He was just towards Jacob. Jacob got back a lot of what he deserved in his life from his father-in-law, that was one of his agents of justice. But he also got far more mercy and grace and forgiveness. One of the most beautiful pictures of all, uh, Jacob's life is when he dies. He leans on his staff, he worships God, and then he dies. We have our own shame and regret, and none of it is hidden from Jesus. None of it. And yet he accepts us as true members of his family. That's his grace and his mercy. Jesus is our ladder to heaven. He's our way to the Father. He is our way to grace and peace. The one who knows everything there is to know about us is our way to God.